We are going to uh, now transition to our scripture reading. I'm going to invite Haziel to come up, and he's reading in, uh, in English and in Spanish as a reminder, just as Acts reminded us, that the gospel is for the whole world. Hechos 21, del 10 al 12. Durante los días que allí permanecíamos, un profeta llamado Ágabo llegó de Judea, pues venía a vernos. Ágabo tomó el cinto de Pablo, se ató con él las manos y los pies, y dijo, el Espíritu Santo ha dicho, así atarán a los judíos en Jerusalén, al dueño de este cinto, y lo entregarán a los no judíos. Al oír esto, nosotros y los de Cesarea le rogamos a Pablo que no fueran a Jerusalén. Acts 21, 13-15. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am, for I am ready not, to, uh, not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, he, uh, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Thank you, Haziel. Gracias. Good morning, church family. How are you? It's good. Good to see you. My name's Aaron. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here. Can't help but notice uh, the 11 is fuller than the 9 on Daylight Saving Sunday. I just want you to know this is a judgment-free zone. If you were planning to come to the 9, things happen, and we're okay with that. I actually woke up three different times in the night because I didn't trust that my phone was going to update and set the alarm off at the right time. And because uh, that happened once to us, uh, to me, and I've been forever nervous ever since. But <clears throat> here I am. And if I get really sleepy in the middle of the sermon, somebody say a loud amen and we'll get right back to where we were. So we've been in the book of Acts for a while and we're coming up on the conclusion. And the end of the book of Acts, really the last eight chapters or so, is kind of a non-stop, just go, go, go sort of conclusion, this dramatic conclusion to the book of Acts. I kind of joked earlier this week that it, it, in many ways it almost feels like a John Grisham novel where there's like an action sequence and then a courtroom sequence and an action sequence and a courtroom drama and a escape at night for your life and another courtroom scene and a getting on a ship and then a shipwreck. And like it's, it's just this kind of nonstop action-packed thing where Paul is going back to Jerusalem on his way ultimately to go to Rome where the book of Acts is going to end. And so here's what makes it challenging just from a preaching standpoint is where do you start, where do you stop? Uh, multiple times you're going to have scenes that are going to be almost the exact same, Paul giving his testimony before people. And so uh, as I was talking with Pastor Steve and some others, he said, hey, let's do this. Over these next few weeks, I'm going to invite all of you to read ahead Please read ahead, <clears throat> kind of chapters 21 through 28 of the book of Acts, just so you're familiar with the overall story. And then what we're going to do is on any, each given Sunday, we're just going to kind of zoom in and we're going to focus in on one particular area or one particular topic, maybe a key verse, a key idea, a key doctrine that comes out. And so today I'm actually going to dig in to the doctrine of prophecy. But because I want to give you a few minutes to digest that, I want to give you a long introduction, Okay. Let me just give you a big flyover of the next couple of chapters so you can have some understanding of this. The story starts, picks up of Paul and his traveling companions starting to head toward Jerusalem. But all along the way, he keeps getting warned in advance. He keeps being warned, if you go to Jerusalem, hardship awaits you. Imprisonment awaits you. Difficulty awaits you. Multiple people along the way start to warn Paul. And that's, that's the section we're going to really dig into today. When he gets to Jerusalem, he is warmly welcomed. 
by, by James and the elders of the Jerusalem church, other like founding members of the way, the Jesus following movement, they are warmly welcomed, but they do say, hey, Paul, you know, you, you've developed kind of a reputation. You've been so friendly with the Gentiles, the, the non-Jewish people, that a lot of Jewish followers of Jesus, really, they, 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 they don't think that you're committed enough to Moses and the Torah, They think that you've abandoned the ways of our forefathers just for the sake of reaching these Gentiles. And so would love it if you could do this. They come up with a plan. Kind of ends up being a little bit of a misguided plan, but they come up with this plan. They say, hey, take these four men, these Jewish men, and we want you to go publicly to the temple like multiple days in a row and offer sacrifices and do these ceremonies. And and then, then these Jewish people will believe you that you really haven't abandoned the ways of our forefathers. And so Paul says, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I'll go. We'll take these four men to the temple and perform some vows. Well, guess what happens? A riot breaks out in the city of Jerusalem. It starts with some accusations. These, these Jewish people see Paul going into the temple. Paul has a traveling buddy, a guy named Trophimus, who's from Ephesus. He's not a Jewish person. And they say, Paul brought a Gentile into the temple. You're not supposed to do that. He didn't do that, but that's what they start to accuse him of. And so a riot breaks out and it it says literally like they're screaming and they're shouting. They drag Paul, a group of them drag Paul out of the temple and they're just beating him and they're pummeling him. And the Roman commander, who's not Jewish, he's a Roman soldier, he sees this chaos going and he enters into the fracas. There's there's people throwing fists and they're yelling, they're screaming. It's like like a Raiders football game in the parking lot afterwards. And they're just like, it's chaos. It says one people are shouting one thing and one people are shouting another thing. And the only thing he knows is that Paul is right in the middle of it. So he drags him and he starts to take him out with a bunch of soldiers and they get to the barracks and Paul starts talking to him in Greek. And the soldier, the, the, the commander goes, how do you know Greek? I thought you were this Egyptian mercenary guy who was sent in to disrupt the temple. He's like, I'm not Egyptian. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm Paul. I was, I was born in Tarsus, but I grew up here in Jerusalem. I'm Jewish. And there's this crowd out there. And can I please talk to them? Don't you love Paul's bravery? Like, they were just beating him. And he's like, I would love to tell them about Jesus. Can I have a few minutes, please? The Roman governor goes, have at it. So he starts to give his testimony. And in his testimony, he starts just with his own reputation. In fact, the scriptures, it's it's very cool. It says he started speaking in Aramaic. Aramaic is the language of the people of Israel in their day. Uh, Greek would have been kind of the language of the world, kind of how English works in our world today. It's kind of the lingua franca, while, while people have different regional languages that they speak. So he starts speaking in Aramaic, and because he's speaking in Aramaic, they all get really quiet. And he starts to tell them, look, I was born in Tarsus. I was brought up right here in Jerusalem. I was educated by Gamaliel. Like, this is him saying, like, I went to Harvard, Right? I, I, was, I was educated by the greatest rabbis according to the strictest version of our interpretation of the Torah. And he goes, for many years, I was zealous. I was a persecutor of the way. These people who claim to be following Jesus as the Messiah, I hunted them down left and right. Both men and women, I imprisoned. But then one day on the road to Damascus, I had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. And I realized that I was completely wrong that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the promised one. I was knocked to the ground. I was blinded. My fellow compatriots heard the voice. They didn't see anything. So we continued on our way to Damascus. When we got there, a believer in Jesus named Ananias came and prayed for me, and I was healed of my blindness, and I was baptized now as a member of the way. I went from persecuting followers of Jesus to being one of them. 
And then the Lord, he says, appeared to me in a vision. And I was told that my mission was to take this message of Jesus the Messiah out to the nations. I'm, I'm the apostle who is sent to the Gentiles. I will pick it up here at the end of chapter 22 in, in verse 22 because it's an interesting little thing that gives you the flavor of these last few chapters. So they listened to him up to this point, And then they raised their voices shouting, wipe this man off the face of the earth. He should not be allowed to live. I don't know if y'all ever had to do like a speech class in college or something. That is not the response you're looking for. He just poured out his heart. He poured out his life, telling them about his own life and about his encounter with Jesus. And he's being rejected. It says that they were yelling and flinging aside their garments and throwing dust in the air. The commander ordered him to be brought back into the barracks, directing that he be interrogated with the scourge to discover the reason they were shouting against him like this. They don't actually know Aramaic. A lot of these Roman governors, uh, you know, centurions, they probably don't even know Aramaic. They don't fully understand what's going on. All they see is Paul is speaking. The people freak out again, and they have a mission to keep the peace in the city of Jerusalem. So we're going to use the scourge, and we're going to get it out of you what you're doing, Paul. As they stretched him out for the lash, Paul said to the centurion standing by, is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? Uh-oh. See, citizenship in the Roman Empire, they conquered everybody, but only certain people had official citizenship status, and that comes with certain protections and legal rights. When the centurion heard this, he went and reported back to his commander, saying, what are you going to do? Yeah, we did this, and the guy's a Roman citizen. We shouldn't have done this. So the commander came and said to him, are you really a Roman citizen? Yes, he said. The commander replied, well, I bought my citizenship for a large amount of money. Well, I was born a citizen, Paul said. Strike two. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the commander, too, was alarmed when he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and he had bound him. So that gives you an overview and a flavor of what the next seven, eight chapters are going to be like. This kind of stuff, riots and political intrigue and stuff. Like I said, I want to go back to the beginning of chapter 21, and I'm going to focus on a really important theme that comes up while this entrance to Jerusalem is happening, the subject of prophecy. So will you pray with me? Lord, I ask and I pray right now that you would help us to behold wonderful things in your word. God, your scriptures, this, this, this book that was inspired by the Holy Spirit to be written, though it was written so long ago, God, it still speaks to us today. So would you bring it to life in our hearts and our minds, Holy Spirit? Speak to us now, God. We, we need to be reminded that you are not a God who is far off and distant, but you are a God who is present here with us right now, even in this very room, even in our very own hearts. God, would you guard my words and my speech. Let me only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word and give us all hearts that worship Jesus more as a result of our time together. We pray this all in his good name. Amen. All right, back to chapter 21, verse 1. So picking up after Paul and the Ephesian elders were all together with many tears, it says, after we tore ourselves away from them, we set sail to a place called Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, 
Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. And after we sighted Cyprus, we passed to the south of it, sailing on to Syria and arrived at the city of Tyre. Since the ship was going to unload its cargo there. So we sought out the disciples and we stayed there for seven days. A lot of scholars think that's probably the the ship had to unload its cargo, reload, make arrangements. They stayed there in, in the city for about a week. And so we went and found the followers of Jesus. We're going to hang out with them. Imagine just showing up. Like, hey, we're here. Can you house us, please? First of all, that was a lot more common back then. But even just this community of Jesus followers, that's Paul. Now listen to this line. Verse 4, part B. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Catch that? Through the Spirit. Now that's interesting because... You might remember last week in chapter 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 22, Paul said expressly that the Spirit was compelling him to go to Jerusalem. So you come to this, okay, the Spirit is telling Paul to go to Jerusalem. The Spirit is telling these disciples for him not to go to Jerusalem. Skeptics or opponents of the Scripture come and say, there's a contradiction here. How do we work this out? We'll come back to that in a minute here. The Spirit was speaking to these disciples. When our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey while all of them, with their wives and children, like, bring the whole family out. They accompanied us out of the city. We went down to the beach to pray. And after kneeling down in the sand, we said farewell to one another, boarded the ship, and they all returned home. Verse 7. When we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them just for one day. So the next day we left and we came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. Oh, we haven't seen Philip for a while. How's it going, buddy? Last time we saw Philip, he was proclaiming the gospel to the Ethiopian court official. He received Jesus, the the, the Ethiopian man did, uh, the Jewish Ethiopian man. Philip baptized him. Myung thinks that Philip was then teleported away, okay? You can talk to him afterwards. Uh, might be, might not be. Uh, and then it says he was just traveling everywhere, just preaching the gospel everywhere until he came to Caesarea, where apparently we have now found out the reason he stayed in Caesarea is because he met a lady. Because it says he, this man, Philip, had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Four young daughters. Can you even imagine having four daughters? What a, what a ridiculous thing to think about. Four young daughters who all talk a lot? I mean, come on, right? Like, it's just silliness. Aaron Lynn, can you? you my, my wife can't even imagine such a thing. Uh, if you're new, I have four daughters. Uh, but they're all prophets. They're all speaking and proclaiming truth about God. Now, this is an amazing thing. What an amazing thing this is because... Early church historians, two guys actually, one named Eusebius and one named Papias, said that these women, at least three of them, lived into their 90s and were continually ministering through the gift of prophecy and were an invaluable source of church, early church history to later historians like Eusebius. We don't know the names of these women. We don't know really the stories of all of them. But my goodness, these are some important women who the Spirit gifted with prophecy. All right, verse 10. After we had been there in Caesarea for several days, a prophet named Agabus, hey, we've seen him before too. We're getting the gang back together. 
Paul's been out there in the Gentile world, like causing riots and stuff. But we got Philip showing back up and Agabus is showing back up. Actually, in a few verses, James, the apostle, shows back up, or the brother of Jesus. It's amazing. Agabus came down from Judea, but he didn't have the greatest of news. It says he came to us, he took Paul's belt and tied up his own hands and feet and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now, when we heard this, both we, this is Luke, the author speaking, we, the traveling partners, and the local people, the disciples, we all started pleading with him, Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. Don't go. And Paul replied, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we said no more. The Lord's will be done. The Lord's will be done. Thy will be done. So all throughout this section, the Spirit is speaking to disciples. The Spirit is speaking to and through Agabus. There are these young women who are prophesying. The Holy Spirit is absolutely active and at work all throughout the book of Acts, but particularly highlighted in this set of verses. And as I come to a topic like prophecy, we have to acknowledge that if for most of us as American Christians who have, who have been around the church for the last 30, 40, 50 years, we come to a subject like prophecy with a little bit of baggage. I was reflecting on my own upbringing in the Christian church, and I remember being a kid and hearing about a particular book that was written, and I think, uh, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but the book was written and published in 1988, and it was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And I remember, like, even as a kid, talking about this with my dad, and my dad being like, yeah, no. <laughs> First of all, 88, that's oddly specific to the year. That's from the Gregorian calendar. It has nothing to do with anything. But also, like, way to, way, like, way to go, buddy. Like, way to put yourself out there. I'm, I'm proud of you. Like, take some, take some courage to do that. Well, you might remember, except for you youngest ones here, uh, 1988 came and went, and there was no rapture. Now, you want to talk about guts. The guy had the guts to write a follow-up book in 1989 called The Final Shout, Rapture Report, 1989. Whoa. Now, 1989, also, I don't know if you're checking history or not, but 1989 came and went, and no rapture. So the guy took a few years off, but in 1993, he came back strong with a little booklet you might be familiar with called 23 Reasons Why a Pre-Tribulation Rapture Looks Like It Will Occur on Rosh Hashanah 1993. <laughs> okay. Took a few years, licked his wounds, but hold on, I got 23 more reasons. Maybe. Possibly. Starting to hedge his bets a little bit. <laughs> I'm not done. In 1994, what seems like just kind of giving up, he pushed out a little pamphlet called, And Now the Earth's Destruction by Fire. Nuclear bomb fire. Like, man. Okay, so we chuckle and we laugh because these are a bunch of things that were bold and gutsy and predicting the future and they didn't come true. They did not happen. 
And yet this is lurking in our minds for those of us who have been followers of Jesus for a while. And even if you're a newer follower of Jesus in the churches in the United States of America, I mean, this is some of our legacy and this is some of our heritage. We look at this, we shake our head, but this is in our family history. And it causes us, particularly those of us who are, you know, we're, we're a Bible church for, for crying out loud. We, we love the scripture and the word of God and stuff like this is just goofy and weird and odd and, and misguided. And even, even worse than this, there are those who have used scriptural biblical gifts like prophecy to actually prey upon others as a, as a predator, to take advantage of people to say, God told me this, God told me that, give me money, marry this person, uh, cult leaders, all sorts of things. But this gift, this good and valuable and biblical gift from the Lord has been misused. And so we run the risk of rejecting the whole thing altogether because of silliness like this. And we miss out on the biblical truth that prophecy is a good gift from God to build up his church. Prophecy is a good gift from God meant to build up his church. And if we don't have that in mind, we misread Acts 21 and other passages like it. I would like to share with you a few theological truths and biblical principles about the subject of prophecy. I'd like to share with you 88 truths. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Seven and then three, and then five. Okay, that's our, that's our chart if you need a... Seven biblical truths about prophecy to help us read a passage like Acts 21. The first is this. Prophecy, we need, we need to do a little bit of deconstruction because we have a concept of prophecy where prophecy equals prediction, right? Prophecy means prediction. I prophesied that, you know, the Mariners will miss the playoffs again. That's a safe prophecy. You're not going to get... Quote as a false prophet on that one, right? A prophecy, right? You, the movies we watch, the entertainment, the prophecy went forth and Neo is the one and he's going to defeat the Matrix and then they're going to make a fourth movie for some reason in 2021. It's probably going to be terrible. Like, right? That's how we think about prophecy. It's always prediction. But really, the bulk of what biblical prophecy is is just proclaiming the truth about God. In Deuteronomy 18, God is speaking through Moses to the people as they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And God is saying, you know, how, you know how the people of the nations, you know how they do like tea leaves and stars and weird visions and animal livers and all this sorts of like divination and weird things that they do? They're like trying to search out some meaning from the gods. Yahweh of Israel says, no, I'm not, I'm not like that. I'm going to speak directly to you through my prophets. You listen to them. I'll, I'll be clear. I'll be straightforward with you. I'll speak directly to you. How many of you are thankful that our God is a communicative God? And we're not left groping in the dark trying to see who God is, but he, he speaks to us through his prophets. Now, now, some of these prophets are where we get our scriptures from. God spoke to prophets and they wrote it down. And these sacred writings have been preserved for us for our benefit and our edification. But there are other prophets throughout the pages of scripture. The, the four daughters of Philip, for example, they are prophets. But those words aren't written down in scripture. So, so here's the point. Prophecy is kind of a broader umbrella term. It's not just prediction. It's not just the Bible. It's speaking the truth about God. Proclaiming truth of who God is, what he's like, what the world is like. Point number two of 88. Prophecy is meant to build up 
and encourage and comfort. This is straight out of the, 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 the pen of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14. The purpose is to build us up, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to comfort us. The, the problem that has happened sometimes in the American church is the gift of prophecy has been used to build up the prophet. The one who is using the gift, when it's the exact opposite, is meant to be a servant role to build up the body of Christ. And again, Paul says nothing about predicting the future in that verse. The gift of prophecy is so that we can know exactly what's coming and what to do. No, he says it's to build up the church, to strengthen and encourage the body of Christ. Number three, prophecy looks a little bit different before and after Jesus. See, with the coming of the Messiah, how many of you know that the whole, the whole universe was changed? When God came in the flesh, like that's a big pivotal moment in human history. You can go back and you can read, in, in, again, in Deuteronomy 18, when God is speaking about his prophets, he says, listen, you need to test these prophets. And if they claim to be speaking from me and the thing happens or it comes true or it comes to pass, then they're a good prophet, you listen to them. But if they're a lying prophet and they're just prophesying their own imagination, you pick up rocks, you throw them at them until they are dead. Death penalty for doing stuff like that 88 Reasons book. Under the Mosaic administration, the people of Israel, the prophets of Israel were held to an incredibly high standard. But then you get to the pages of the New Testament. So 1 Thessalonians 5, for example, and the Apostle Paul, he says, look, don't despise prophecy. Let people prophesy. But you're going to have to test things. You have to test things and, and hold on to the parts that are good. Well, that's different than, and if it's not good, kill them. He says, we're going to weigh it. We're going to sift it. And and the reason why we have seemingly, it's not that there's a different standard, but it's a different point in redemptive history. See, before the coming of the Messiah, the Holy Spirit was given out to a select few in full, powerful administration so that they could be these prophetic representatives from God. But how many of you know, if you remember back in Acts chapter 2, Peter quoted from the prophet Joel that said, when the Messiah comes, I'm going to give my spirit to who? Whom? I don't know what the right grammar is. Everybody, you all get the Spirit by virtue of your faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's a, uh, Sam Storms is a pastor, he uses the phrase, a democratization of the Spirit that is different before and after Jesus. So the gifting, like the purpose of the gifting is still the same, proclaiming truth about God, building up the body, but it does look different now on our side of the death and the resurrection of the Messiah. Point number four, prophecy can be admonition, it can be prediction, and it also sometimes is symbolism. Admonition is the idea of just, I'm admonishing you, I'm proclaiming, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, hey, like, you know, stop sinning, be faithful to God. If you read, you know, the Old Testament prophets, that's the overwhelming majority of what biblical prophecy is. Telling people, stop sinning, be faithful to God, look at what he's done for us. It's, it's an admonishing. Now, there is some prediction If we don't stop, Babylon is going to come and take us into exile. There is absolutely predictive prophecy. Even Agabus, we just saw, Agabus showed up and and he tied the belt and said, this is what's going to happen, and it came true. And which brings me to the point about symbolism, because some of prophecy is a symbolic action. Think about like Jeremiah taking the, the linen underwear and putting them in a wall for years, or weird things that these prophets would do. Like, why are they doing that? It's to make a point. They don't just do the action, though. They make a point with the action. Agabus ties the belt around his hands and feet and says, this is going to happen to you, Paul. 
Think about this. There are a few prophetic, symbolic actions that we regularly engage with as the church. Baptism is a prophetic, symbolic action. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been raised with him to new life. Baptism is a prophetic action that says, I have had my sins washed clean by Jesus, and I am part of his family forever. And we are going to baptize people on Resurrection Sunday. I talked with a young lady this morning who says, sign me up. I want to tell everybody that I'm in on Team Jesus. If you've not been baptized as a follower of Jesus, you need to partake in this prophetic, symbolic act. The Lord's table, a little later in the service, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. What do we say? We read this verse every week in 1 Corinthians 11. As, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How's that for prophetic? It's a prophetic, symbolic action. When you take the bread and you eat it and you take the cup and you drink it, you are saying, Christ died for my sins. He rose again to give me newness of life. And one day Christ will come again. And that is my eternal hope. It's a prophetic, symbolic act. Number five, we need to remember that God's revelation is perfect, but our grasp is often imperfect. There is nothing wrong with God's communication. If there's a breakdown, it is us. Think about this. We believe that this is the perfect word of God, do we not? But do you know sincere, Jesus-loving, committed to the scriptures, Bible-believing Christians who disagree and have differing interpretations on certain points? Absolutely. That doesn't mean there's a problem with the Bible. It means that we are fallible human beings. In the same way, I even see this here a little bit in Acts chapter 21, where the Spirit is saying the same thing to Paul, to Agabus, to these disciples. If you go to Jerusalem, trouble awaits you. Now, Paul says, I'm ready. I got to go face the trouble. I got to do it. And those disciples in Tyre said, no, 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 don't go, don't go. They're, they're importing. God is speaking the same thing to everybody. But they're coming to the conclusion, therefore, Paul, you should not go to Jerusalem. He's like, I have to go to Jerusalem. There's nothing wrong with the broadcasting antenna of God's revelation, but we are all just a bunch of creaky old clock radios that don't quite get our dials set often. This is why in 1 Corinthians, it talks about, hey, people are going to speak prophetic words, but we need to evaluate. It's why in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, don't despise the prophecies. You've got to test them and hold on to what's good. That is true about any Bible teacher, myself included, a word from God, anything. We test it all and we hold on to what is good because we know human beings and we love you. You humans are great. You're wonderful. I said you humans like I'm not one of you. (laughs) This is when I come clean that I'm an alien. No, right? Human beings, we love you, but man, we, we just don't always get the revelation from God right, which is why we need each other and why we need the scriptures and why we need humility. Number six, prophecy is and isn't for all. So, like I said a minute ago, in Joel chapter 2, God says, when this, when this latter time comes, when the Messiah comes, all this stuff, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. There's the daughters of Philip, right, in that prophecy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, like lower status, lower class, they are also going to get a full dose of my Holy Spirit, God says. 
after Jesus dies and rises again in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up in front of the crowd and said, it's all come true. We all get the Holy Spirit. And so we should not be surprised to see an older man like Agabus and younger women like the daughters of Philip prophesying that this gift is available to anyone. But the Apostle Paul also tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that not everyone gets every single gift. So it is not an expectation that every single one, he, he literally says, he goes, does everyone speak in tongues? Does everyone have the ability to perform miracles? Does everyone have gifts of healing? Does everyone prophesy? And the assumed rhetorical answer to that is no. He says, we're all one body with different parts and the Holy Spirit gives out gifts as he determines. So there's a tension there, right? We should be uh, excited to see the prophetic gift used by anyone, but not expecting that every single person is going to have a prophetic type of gift. You tracking with me so far? All right, that's six. I got 82 more. Here we go. Now, last one, most important one, most important one. The ultimate aim of prophecy is to point us to Jesus. Think about this. Paul, compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, where he knows he will be met by resistance from the religious leaders and an angry crowd. And he knows that the Roman governmental officials are going to get involved. And he knows that death awaits him. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Does that sound like a prophetic reimagining of something more ultimate? But here's the difference. While Paul was compelled to go by the Spirit to Jerusalem, there's a reprieve. His, his compelling to go to Jerusalem is just a sign pointing us to the Savior, Jesus, who was compelled to go to Jerusalem to face an angry mob to, to face the scorn of the religious leaders, to face the power of the Roman Empire. Oh, but he didn't, he didn't get to pull out the Roman citizen card and have it stopped short. No, Jesus, the, the scourge came out and his back was whipped because of our sinfulness. And when Jesus dragged his cross through the streets, this is no more symbolic prophetic, prophetic action. This is the real thing that he is going to the cross to atone for the sins of the world. And when he is placed between two thieves and he is crucified on the hill called the skull and he cried out the words of the scripture, it is finished. Friends, this is no prophetic act. It's the real deal. Our salvation is accomplished and Jesus rose again on the third day to prove to us that it was all true. It was all true, everything he was saying. And one day, those who put their faith in him, even if they die yet again, shall we live. We will rise with him on the last day and we will have eternal life with him forever. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. And here's the thing. If it is true prophecy from God, it is not going to ultimately point you to the prophet. It is not ultimately going to point you to some predictive future so you can get rich. It's going to point you to the crucified and resurrected Messiah who rules and reigns forevermore. That is true biblical prophecy at the end of the day. It's a lot to swallow. It's a lot to chew on, a lot to think about. But I just want to invite you to check your heart. I'm going to invite you to check your heart. A couple questions on this, a few questions. The first one is this. Do, do you regularly welcome the Spirit's guidance? You know, again, as a, as a Bible church, we talk about prayer, we talk about searching the Scripture, we talk about getting wise counsel. But I just want to put before you that, that throughout your day, hour by hour, moment by moment, we, we, we have the Spirit of God with us all the time. Okay, Lord, I'm in this situation with a coworker who's 
angry or something, like, Lord, would you help me? Spirit, would you guide me? Oh, I'm, I'm having a conversation with a, a non-Christian friend or neighbor. Spirit, would you help me know what the right words to say are? Spirit, I'm just grumpy today. I don't know what's going on with me. Would you search my heart and help me to know? Like, help me, Spirit. Do you regularly interact with the Spirit throughout your day? I mean, again, we're all coming to this with, with various baggages or things like that. But it shouldn't be strange if, if these disciples in Tyre could say through the Spirit, they said, hey, trouble's coming in Jerusalem. What if we were regularly interacting with the Holy Spirit in this way? Second question. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that, yeah, we need to be focused on love. Love is like the thing. But along with that, eagerly desire these greater gifts. I just a, a little bit of a confession from me is that, you know, over my years, I was raised in more charismatic type of churches, and I saw firsthand, this isn't just things I read on the internet, like it's my own eyes. I, I saw and heard the weirdest of weird stuff. Strange stuff. For a little while, I'm like, I, I don't want to even be a part of any of that kind of stuff. Even though it's everywhere in the Bible, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I actually had a thought for a while. <laughs> I thought to myself, what's the most boring denomination? I'm going to go join the most boring denomination. And I said, I think it's Lutheran. I think I'm going to go be a Lutheran. And I've, I've had this conversation with a few Lutherans. They're like, yep, you were right. <laughs> I love you Lutherans. Thank you for Martin Luther. There was a season though in my life where God had to do some healing work in my own heart to say like, just because I saw a misuse of a, a, a good God-given tool and gift does not mean that the gift is in itself wrong. Like that big idea I shared back at the beginning, prophecy is a good gift from God to build up his church. Do you eagerly desire the greater gifts? And then third heart check question along with that is, are you discerning or just plain skeptical? And there is a difference. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Thessalonians 5, Test these things. Evaluate them. Submit them to Scripture. Submit them to wise counsel. Others who have gifts of prophecy as well. But how many of you know in our day and age, it is far too easy to just be a skeptic? A few thoughts just in closing. Some practical guidance. Some things I just want to encourage you in. Number one, would you, would you regularly ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you? Just regularly ask. Particularly if you're like the kind of like thoughtful, like oh, I'm going to figure out and put a plan together. Stop before you do that and say, Holy Spirit, would you help me put this plan together? Would you help me address this situation? Somebody just said something to you like, I don't know what to say. In that quick moment in your mind, Holy Spirit, would you help me? Speak to me. Number two, if the Holy Spirit speaks, tell it to someone. And, and, and here's my advice on that. Start with someone who is themselves mature, godly, wise, because you're going to need a little bit of practice. There might be times where you think the Spirit's speaking something to you and it maybe doesn't land. It's okay. There are other times when the Spirit's speaking something to you and, and it will. So start with, start with somebody close to you. Start with a trusted friend or, or a, a leader in the church. Third, we, we, we got to be bold. I mean, that takes boldness to speak that stuff, but we always got to be humble, right? I reserve the right to get this wrong. Hey, language I found is helpful. Like, hey, I, I believe God is speaking something to me. I, th I think God is saying something to me. Not, thus saith the Lord. Why is that? Like, when you talk about like weirdness, like why is it that God only speaks in Shakespearean English through people with the gift of prophecy? Just, just be bold, but be humble. Be normal about it. 
I really feel like maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think God's saying something to me here for you. And along with that, be willing to listen to others. Be willing to listen to others. They might be trying it out as well. Hey, I think that God's saying something to me for you. And they say it to you and you're like, ah, I don't really resonate with that, but let me think about it, pray about it. There might be other times where you just absolutely are just blessed in a massive way by listening to what someone else has to say to you. And then lastly, number five, be prophetic in your witness. The Apostle Paul says that the gift of prophecy is first and foremost to build up and encourage and strengthen the church. Yes. But the Apostle Paul also says that the gift of prophecy is given so that when a non-believer comes into your midst and hears the message of the truth of God being proclaimed, says they'll be cut to their cart to the core, having the secrets of their heart laid bare, and they'll say, truly, God is in this place. So every day, as you interact with people who are not yet believers in Jesus, do you need the Holy Spirit so that you can be prophetic in your witness? You better believe it. Because you can't convince them. You can't bring a dead heart to life. You need the Holy Spirit to speak through you and to lead and to guide and direct you in that. So let's be prophetic in our witness. And even now as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table, this prophetic, symbolic action as Pastor Jamin leads us in communion, we are proclaiming the gospel and our hope in his final return. Will you pray with me? Lord, would you help us now as we turn our our attention and our time to celebrating the Lord's table and eating and drinking this prophetic, symbolic action, Lord God, would you help us to have our hope, not in our abilities to to use this gift and, and any of that, Lord, but just our hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ, you loved us, you lived a perfect life, you died, you rose again, and you are coming again for those who believe in you. Lord, I ask and I pray now, that your Holy Spirit would even fill us afresh, even through this activity of eating and drinking, that Holy Spirit, you would help us to grow as a church in being prophetic about the kingdom of God that is here and is to come. We love you, Lord Jesus. We give this time to you. Amen.